lot of Buddhist philosophy. They were actually very prolific. The Buddhists, I mean, even today, I suppose, but back in India, a tremendous amount of philosophy produced from many different points of view. So I'm going to try to give you a very simple, clear framework, because all of these different philosophers and all these different points of view, they're all taking place within a very simple structure. And if you understand the simple structure, you can just locate any of these particular ideas on this sort of like a simple philosophical map of, of Buddhism. So, uh, it all started, of course, with the Buddha himself, the historical Buddha. And uh, we know about the Buddha, again, just to remind you, from uh, the oldest documents we have are the Pali Sutras, the three Pitakas, the first basket is the Sutra basket. Just a reminder, if you want these back, make sure you make a note, because I didn't bring all this stuff in today. Because only a few people said they wanted it back, so I didn't throw them out. So if you, if you do want it back, just tell me again, and I'll, I'll bring it to you if you want some past uh, notes you took. So the problem, there are two problems with the historicity, the historical value of the oldest documents, the Pali Sutra basket, the teaching basket. That is, number one, uh, the Pali canon is only one of 18 different schools at the time. So basically that's what one of 18 schools thought. And number two, if you look at this oldest basket, what you find is that uh, there's all kinds of interpolations. There's old stuff, there's newer stuff. It's not all the same age because people were becoming, it wasn't written down until uh, hundreds of years later and people got inspired and they sort of felt on religious grounds that, well, the Buddha really is inspiring me to say this and this is what he really meant and I think that's what I heard he said and so on and so forth. So, but as far as uh, it is reliable and they did have different techniques they had for memorizing things back then as a kind of borrowed from the Vedic people. And so we have the Buddha's first sermon, uh, second sermon. So this, this is like the bedrock of Buddhist thinking. In other words, everything else refers back to this. Every Buddhist philosopher is basically arguing about this, which is the first list I wrote on the board. So this is kind of the bedrock basis of all the, the whole Buddhist philosophical history. So when I talk about this, basically what Buddha said, or what everyone believes he said, in his second sermon, in the Deer Park, he got enlightened, he went back to pick up these five old guys he used to meditate with, and so he gave one sermon in which he kind of laid out his basic teachings, he converted them, and here's the second sermon that Buddha ever gave, according to the tradition. And I'm going to read the whole thing. It's very short. Well, first I'll tell you what this list means. I'll read it. It's a very short thing. It's just, you know, it's like, let's say, half a page. Basically, what Buddha said is that uh, if you study yourself the way we are right now, in the world, unenlightened, attached to many things, suffering, because that's a huge thing, dukkha, suffering. Here we are in the world, unenlightened, and if we study ourselves, we find there's five components. We're made up of five different elements in our present condition, unenlightened. First one he called rupa, which in Sanskrit means form, and basically means like the physical body, just like the, the body, physical body. Second one, vedana, our feelings. Feeling. Anyway, got forget. Our feelings. We have a body, we have emotions. Then there's a third one called sangya, 
which, uh, what that really meant back at that period in Sanskrit, it was a common term used in other discourses, it meant sort of like classifying things, putting names on things, put categorizing things. And so what we do is, we have a body, we have feelings, we tend to sort things out like, that's a wall, that's a chair, I'm a person, this is a boy, that's a girl, just kind of figuring out what everything is. And then there's samskara, sort of our reasoning, samgya. Then samskara, this is a term really borrowed, you could say, from the yoga system, or shared by the yoga system. Samskara, I put deep will, in the sense of deep volition. The idea is that because there is reincarnation, there is karma, which of course the Buddhists accepted, the Buddha accepted, Therefore, when we're born, we're not blank slaves. We are not blank slaves. We bring into this world these very strong propensities from our previous life. Like, for example, my last life, if I was really into music, then in this life also I'm kind of musical. Or if in my past life, let's say I fell off a cliff, then in this life I'm afraid of heights. And people may think it's an irrational fear, but it's not really an irrational fear because I actually had a bad experience. Or... Whatever, maybe someone got married and had a bad experience, they're not inclined to get married, or they had a great experience in marriage, so they're very romantic and looking for their soulmate. In other words, all of our deep volitions, our propensities, our wishes, we're bringing them in from the past life, and that's called samskara, sort of our deep psychology, which is built up, accumulated from our past lives. So that also is making us tick, so to speak. Now, the final one, this is the real kicker, as they say. This, this last one, I have identified philosophically as the real issue. Because generally, in terms of the people who were in the Upanishads, or became known as Vedanta, and the other Shramanas, the Jains, no one's going to argue about the first four. These things are temporary. This is not the real ultimate person, if there is a real ultimate person, or that's not the, that's not the real ultimate uh, reality, you could say, of who we are. That's not the ultimate reality who we are. Our body is temporary because, you know, it takes so many bodies. Our feelings change. The way we classify the world, obviously, if you weren't in the physical world, you wouldn't be classifying it. So the way you reason about the world is something you do now while you're down here in samsara, wandering around the material realm. And as far as your conditioning, your deep psychological conditioning, that's just what it is. It's your deep psychological conditioning. And once you get enlightened, this stuff falls away. And you no longer desire things or don't want things because of your past experiences. You now make your decisions based on a pure consciousness. You see the world the way it really is. So the first four, everyone back then would agree this is not the ultimate reality of us. That's not who we really are. Now the fifth one, I put question marks because uh, it's very problematic. Now, it's, okay, Vijnana, that's how you pronounce it generally. The Sanskrit purists might say Vijnana, but no one in India says that. So Vijnana, let's look at this word Vijnana. A little space left to me here. Because this word Vijnana, the definition of this word Vijnana, in a sense, all of the Buddhist philosophical debates, internal debates among themselves and debates with other people, all these debates are going to pivot on this, on number five, although they don't say it so much in the books, but that's what, really what it is. Um, now the word jnana, the word jnana 
means knowledge. It's a simple Sanskrit word for knowledge. Here's the root, ya, that's the root. And we have cognate words in English like the word cognate. The gna there is the gyan here. And uh, cognition, and of course the Greek gnosis, and so on. Gnostic, agnostic, etc., etc., etc. So that's the Sanskrit word jnana. Now, Sanskrit is an Indo-European language, and it can have these little prefixes before words. Like, for example, here's one common prefix, vi. So when you say vi jnana, it means a certain kind of jnana. We have that in English, by the way, as an Indo-European language. We still have that system in English. Take a typical Indo-European uh, stem, vert, like Sanskrit vert, English vert. We can say revert, invert, subvert, pervert, introvert, extrovert, etc., etc., etc. There's all kinds of verbs. So we're taking this basic stem, this verbal stem, vert, and just putting prefixes on it to change the meaning, like invert, to turn in, revert, to turn again, and so on and so forth. So that's in Sanskrit also. So vigyan means a certain kind of knowledge. Now, uh, this is translated in what I'm going to read, if I ever get through this, as consciousness. It's often translated as consciousness. The problem with that translation, it, it's a very uh, problematic translation, because it is not the Buddha's position, it was not the position of the Buddha, that when you become enlightened, you're unconscious. Because if that were true, if there's really no soul at all, nothing eternal, nothing enduring, and uh, consciousness itself is one of the problems here. You could just hit yourself over the head with a mallet and you'd be in nirvana. But the whole idea is that in nirvana you are conscious. You're in bliss. You finally understand things. You're not an illusion anymore. You're not suffering. So therefore, to say that one of the problems is consciousness, as you can see, is not a great translation. Also, if you look at Buddhist literature, all you need to do to get a form of consciousness which is acceptable and desirable and perfect is just change the prefix. All you've got to do is put the prefix pra, that's a P there, pragya, and it's a winner. For example, one of the most famous Buddhist words is the, like they have like the pragya. I'm sorry, the word pragya is a typical Buddhist word for wisdom, state of high consciousness, and so on. So obviously there are many states of consciousness which are indicated by, you can distinguish them by putting different prefixes on the word jnana. So again, this list here is the whole Buddhist philosophical history is based on arguing about what this list really means, as I'll try to show you. So, uh, so it's not just consciousness. It's a certain kind of consciousness. Now, vijnana, another problem is that pragya and vijnana are synonyms in the dictionary. But anyway, uh, if you take vijnana very literally, the word vi, by the way, let's go back to vijnana, which is one of the five skandhas. These are skandhas. These are the aggregates. These are five components of our present unenlightened state. And the idea is that you throw all these things out, or at least don't identify with them, there's nothing left. There's nothing left that you can call a self. That was one of the early ideas of Buddhism. That's how they came to this no-self doctrine, which is one of the central doctrines of Buddhism, no-self. Because on the Vedic side, everybody was talking about Atman. Atman was the big thing, the self, the soul. Oops. 
See, from which we get words like ATM machine. Anyway, so the Atman, Atman means the self or the soul. And on the Vedic side, that was the rage, the soul. So Buddha said, no, Anatman. Anatman, no self. Because this is who we are right now, these five things. Take them all away, there's nothing left. So that's the basic doctrine, as some people interpret it. But as we'll see, it didn't really fly with many or even most Buddhists. They figured out a way around this for various reasons. But in any case, um, an example is given. There's a very famous Buddhist story to give you this idea that if you throw out all these parts, nothing's left. Remove everything which is not really you, there's nothing left, so it's just sort of this impersonal, selfless consciousness, whatever that means. There was a Buddhist preacher in early days called Nagasena, and he uh, went to deliver, enlighten a king named Melinda, sort of a Greek king in what is now Afghanistan and part of Alexander's empire. So he said to the king, take a chariot, take a chariot. There's the wheels, there's the seat, there's the, um, you know, the reins of the chariot, there's all the different parts of the chariot. There's no chariot. You throw all the parts out, there's nothing left. It's just parts, none of the parts of the chariot. The parts are made of parts and so on. So in that sense, everything ultimately is just like this. Just like we have no self, because you can throw all the parts out, nothing's left. Anything at all is made of parts, and you can throw all the parts out, and therefore, there is no thing in the world. The world really exists, but if you point to anything, it's just a composite. There is no thing which exists by itself as a separate, independent thing. There's just, it's just a process in which there's all kinds of parts in this perpetual process. Now that is very simple, very basic, basic Buddhist thinking of some people. So, um, are there any questions on this? Yes? What does V actually mean? Oh, sorry. So much information, so little time. Uh, v, if you know Italian, via, via, which means away, like in Italy they want to say get out of here, they say via, via. So, and actually it's related to the English word away, via, way, away, so uh, it means sort of like knowing away in the sense separation, it has a sense of separation in the sense that um, you know things separately. You know things separately, you distinguish things, you can discern what different things are, vijana. And awareness, for example, you can distinguish knowledge coming from your senses, knowledge from your mind, knowledge from your reasoning, and so on. Yes? Um, does this chariot metaphor ever come with an idea of a driver? Because Very good, thanks for reminding me. The same example is given in the Katu Upanishad. You see, this is an answer, well, I'm not pointing, nothing is there, but... Nagasena's example of, of the dissolvable chariot is a sort of like a rebuttal to a very famous example given in the Upanishads, the Katu Upanishads, where, where the, the chariot is the, is the body, the reins of the chariot are uh, the mind, the horses are the senses, and the chariot driver is intelligence, buddhi, and the soul is the passenger. So the problem with Nagasena's example is he neglects to talk about the fact that chariots are built for passengers, and so who's the passenger? But anyways, you see the Buddhists have their chariot example, the Vedas, the Vedanta has their ch chariot example. But I want to read you Buddha's actual sermon. And when, when we read the sermon, 
then I'm going to explain how this very simple understanding in our present condition, the way we are now, unenlightened, we're made up of these five things, none of them are what we ultimately are, take them all away, there's nothing left, so no self, no Upanishads, no cigar. So this was an early understanding that a lot of people had, but it, there was a lot of trouble in the Buddhist world over this. There was trouble in nirvana. So I'm going to read you the actual second sermon of the Buddha. This is it. It's very short. And this is what it's all based on. On the fifth day after he arrived at the Deer Park, the Buddha delivered his second sermon. It is known in Buddhist literature as, this is not the sermon, this is the introduction. it's known as the Sermon on the Non-Existence of Soul. That's Atman. This is the sermon in Buddhism on the non-existence of a self or soul. Oh monks, this is the Buddha speaking, the body, that's number one here, the body cannot be considered a soul because it is liable to destruction. Sensation, number two, perception, number three, predisposition, number four, and consciousness, uh, translation number five, penalty flags, consciousness uh, also cannot be considered a soul. None of these can be considered a soul. Uh, because even the consciousness, which is really Vigyan, Buddha didn't speak English, even, cons- even Vigyana is subject to destruction, is not the form, these are now a bunch of rhetorical questions, is not the form transitory? Uh, is it permanent or not sensation, perception, inclination, and consciousness transitory? Are they permanent? No, Buddha. And that which is transitory, is it evil or good? Anyway, it's my good way to work with here. In other words, something is temporary, it's evil. Uh, and that which is transitory, evil, and liable to change, can it ever be considered as, this is mine, or this I am. Something's temporary, it's not really you, it's, you can't really belong to you. And all these five are eliminated. Or, none of these can be, quote unquote, my eternal soul. Then, Omas, all physical form, whether past, present, or future, whether subjective or objective form, or near, high, or low, should be rightfully regarded as, this is not I, this is not mine, and this is not my eternal soul. In the like manner, all sensation, perception, inclinations, and consciousness must be considered as, these are not mine, these are not I, these are not my eternal soul. So a little bit of repetition here. The reason for repetition is because in order to memorize these things, they kind of, they memorize it in very repetitious forms. It was kind of a technique they used back then, because they didn't write things down. Knowing thus, O monks, a true disciple, a true disciple, and they're going to debate, Buddhists would debate, like, who's the real disciple? Who really understands the Buddha? A true disciple will develop an aversion to the physical forms, the sensations, the perception, inclination, and consciousness, Thereby he overcomes his desire, which is the cause of suffering, right? That's noble truth number two. Becomes freed, and having become freed, realizes that becoming is exhausted. Becoming means where something wasn't there, now it popped up, now it goes away, like I didn't have a relationship with her, now she's in my life, now she's out of my life, or, you know, I own this, now I don't own it anymore, everything's changing, I'm here in this body, now my body's dying, now I have to go to another body. This is the world of becoming. So becoming is exhaustive. 
that one realizes one has lived a pure life, that one has done what was expected of him, that he has done away with mortality forever. That's it. D.S. That's all, folks. Now, what I find amazing about this second sermon, which is known in Buddhist tradition as the Sermon on the Non-Existence of the Soul, is that Buddha does not say there's no soul. He doesn't say it. He just says, none of these five are the soul. And again, this does not mean consciousness in the most general sense, because nirvana is not a state where you're knocked out cold forever. Nirvana is a state of consciousness. Therefore, this just means one particular kind of consciousness which is not desirable. Buddha does not say there's no soul. He does not say there's not an atma. And Buddha started noticing he didn't say it. Some people start saying, wait a second. He actually didn't say there's no soul. He just said, these things aren't the soul. Now, in ancient times, very early on, there were, within a very short time after Buddha passed away, there were 18 different Buddhist schools. So did everyone agree on what he said? No. There were 18 different schools in the beginning. And it, there were more after that. So there was not agreement. Now there's some reasons why there wasn't agreement. There was a reason why Buddhism really lent itself to many different understandings. Uh, for one thing, and I put these are four variables. Four variables in trying to figure out what did Buddha really say? Because people were trying to figure it out. Number one, uh, Buddha used two different kinds of language. He sometimes spoke personally. He sometimes said, for, in fact, there's one famous quote he gave, which people used, saying that Buddha said that these aggregates, these samskandhas, are like a burden. These are a burden for the, and they're a burden for the person who carries the burden. In other words, there's a person, there's some kind of self who is carrying this burden of a material body and material emotions and all this. So... If there's no soul, I mean, but he, just, he said there's a person who carries this burden, which means you take all these away, the person's left. So that was a problem. And but sometimes Buddha said, or he would reported to have said, there's no self. So there were two different kinds of language in Buddha's teaching, as it was remembered in the Pali Sutta Pitaka, which was only one of 18 schools and which has all kinds of interpolations in it, and therefore not historically reliable, but that's what we got in that there, there's these two different kinds of language. Now, what did people do with these two different kinds of language? Impersonal and personal language. They said, well, there are two levels of truth. There's an ultimate truth, which is what Buddha really meant. This is what he really meant. And then there's conventional sense. He just said that because he was dealing with people who weren't real bright. And remember that? the. Uh, the Upaya Koshelya, Buddha had great skill in the means. He knew he was dealing with people who weren't real bright, and therefore he just told them things like to tempt children out of a burning house by telling them there's toys outside. So and it's, it's also the example of the raft, that Buddha was, his teachings were like a raft, and once you get to the other side, you throw away the raft, because who needs a raft once you're on the other side? So the problem is here, that, there's another problem so I didn't have space to write, but the problem is there were all kinds of different Buddhist schools that disagreed on what was the ultimate sense and what was the conventional sense, what was just like 
you know, for the moment, let's just tell people what they can understand to get them going on their path. People disagreed on that. Some people said, well, when Buddha talks about the person who bears the burden of these skandhas, that's what he really meant. And when Buddha doesn't say there's no soul, he, in fact, another problem was that Buddha never actually really insisted that there's no soul. He was always reluctant to absolutely deny or he wouldn't answer the question. There's a famous conversation where he was asked, is there an eternal soul? And everyone knew what he meant because most people in India at the time believed there was an eternal soul and they were, you know, reading the Vedas and all that, the Upanishads. So Buddha never really just came right out and said, there's no eternal soul, it's all nonsense. He always kind of fudged and kind of, you know, finessed his answer like he wouldn't answer, he wouldn't answer the question. Buddha, why didn't you answer the question? Well, because if I say there is a soul, people will misunderstand what I really mean. If I say there's no soul, they'll also misunderstand. So, better just not say anything. Yes? Did Buddhists also accept this conventional stance that not everything the Buddha says is literal? Oh, yeah. Everyone agreed on that. They just disagreed on what's the real stuff and what's the tricky, skillful teaching for the moment to get people out of suffering. So, you got these two, four variables. Buddha speaks different ways, personally and impersonally, and people in Buddhism, all these schools disagree on what's the real stuff and what's just the, you know, the trick to get people out of suffering. Now there's another problem. There's another problem. And that is there is a lot of evidence, at least if you read all the books on Buddhism written by respected specialists in the field, that Buddha was not presenting ontology, he was presenting psychology. Ontology is the branch of philosophy that is concerned with existence. Like, what exists? Does a soul exist? Does God exist? Does the world really exist? Is it just in our mind? Is it outside of our mind? What's my relationship to the world? Am I one with the world? Am I different from the world? Am I one and different? All this stuff, which obviously keeps us up at night. This is called ontology. This is called ontology. Now, there's a lot of evidence scholars are satisfied that Buddha was not really talking about that. He kept emphasizing, never mind the world. Never mind the world. I'm concerned with getting you into a higher state of consciousness. Therefore, Buddha was concerned with psychology. And that he recommended many practical steps, like meditate like this. Even in English, for example, we have the word selfless. Selfless doesn't mean there's no self. Selfless just means just the way we talk. So, for example, I, I want to give you a few quotes here. Um, here's a doozy. This is from the book we have, a short introduction to Buddhist, uh, I'm sorry, to Indian philosophy. From Oxford. The Buddha was denying not people's selves. He wasn't denying people's selves, the Atman, but that anything exists independently. This is clearly in contrast to the claims of others uh, who say that the self exists permanently, which uh, doesn't really make sense. Or, but, but anyway, he was not denying there's any self. There's another quote, uh, see, what was it? Let me think for a second. That, um, oh yeah, the minimal requirement, or for most Buddhas, Buddhas, uh, am I going to find that or not find it? Um, anyway, there's a quote in our book that a minimal requirement for almost all Buddhists, to be a Buddhist, most Buddhist schools, 
is to believe in some kind of continuing personal identity. There's some kind of continuing personal identity. And that's actually, according to one of our books, the minimum requirement for most Buddhist schools. Some kind of continuing personal identity. So I want to get a little more specific now and tell you about how there was kind of this uh, problem, this tension in Buddhism at the beginning. Because Buddha has two kinds of statements, the two ways of interpreting these statements. And so from the very beginning, people, for various reasons, were not really satisfied with this simple, absolute statement, no self, no soul, nothing continues. It didn't really fly. And I'll give you historical examples. First, in the Mahasanghika, you may remember, if you may remember, anyway, as you may remember, um, the first schism, the great schism in Buddhism, I believe at the, at the Second Council, the great schism was... Uh, one of those points of the schism was that the people who won, the Mahasanga, Mahami's big, large, great, Magna, and Latin, and so the, the majority, the majority of Buddhists accepted a doctrine called Lokotara, or I just separated the word, Lokotara. In other words, that Buddha is beyond the world. So there's this attention on the person of Buddha. Because if there's only an impersonal consciousness, no, the Buddha is special. He's our leader, and he stands beyond the world. So the person of Buddha, the individual Buddha, is important. Not only that, but there, can be, there are many Buddhas. He's not the only Buddha. This is a very early way of thinking. And it develops, clearly, into the Bodhisattva doctrine of the Mahayana, a little bit later, that everyone really is a Buddha at heart that everyone really has the Buddha nature in them. Sanskrit Buddha Tattu, the Buddha element. That, and, and, and for example, if there's a luminous consciousness, pure consciousness, enlightenment is already inside of you. It's who you really are. You are really a Bodhisattva. You are really an enlightened soul, but you've just forgotten it. You're covered now, which happens to be exactly what the Upanishads teach. So that was an important doctrine Mahayana. So we have the Early on, the Second Council, Mahasangika, there's a Buddha at Lokotri, he's beyond this world, he's a great individual. There are many Buddhas, not just one, which gives importance to individuals. Then you have something called the Pudgalavada. The Pudgalavada, which, as scholars know, is almost forgotten now. Like, how many of you here have heard of Pudgalavada before? You see? I just proved it. The problem here is that this was one of the most important Buddhist groups for the entire time that Buddhism existed in India. The word Pudgala means person. Sanskrit, Purusha, is a Pali word. And the Pudgala Vad, which was one of the most influential, important Buddhist schools, in fact, it was five schools, of the 18 original schools, this was almost a third of them. And what they stated is, there is a real person. There is a real person. We are all real persons. We are eternal persons, and uh, that's not an illusion. And so we, conscious persons, that's not what vijnana. Vijnana is a particular kind of consciousness that you have to transcend, but you are a person. This is the Pudgalavada. And they, they argued, and they had a lot of influence. They were actually a very important group. They argued that if you say there's no person, there are three big problems. Three big problems if you say there's no person in Buddhism. And these are Buddhists. One problem is karma. How does karma actually work? Let's say here's a person with a bunch of karma. The person died. 
and according to Buddhism, takes birth somewhere else, maybe in a different world. Remember the Buddhist universe? It's a big universe. There's all kinds of worlds. Let's say you take birth in some other planet, some other world. How did you get there? I mean, and you're not a person. There's only these five things. There's only these five components. They're gone because you just died. And somehow or other, who is it that goes to the next world? It's not you because you're not a person. So who goes to the next world? And how did you get there? What's the mechanism? And how does your karma get there? Like who, in some kind of cosmic FedEx or something? I mean, who delivered your karma? Who remembered your karma? It's not you. And also, if you look at Buddha, remember in Buddha's original enlightenment, the first great thing, his enlightenment, the first thing he realized was all his past lives. What do you mean his past lives? So the Pudgals were saying like, hello everybody, you know, we believe that Buddha had lots of past lives, so if Buddha's not a person, what are we talking about? And that Buddha, because he performed so many meritorious deeds, he was such a great guy, his karma, he just had like this super out of control good karma, and then he got born as Buddha. So what are we talking about? There's obviously a person. Okay, now I got this much good karma. Boom, next life. Okay, got some more good karma. Next life. Wow, I'm on a roll here. More good karma. More good... Aren't we talking about a person? There's, there's no person. What are we talking about? So the mechanism, the operation of karma is, is absurd if there's not someone who's getting the karma. That's what they said. Another problem. Uh, the moral issue. If I'm not a person, how am I responsible for what I do? You can't say, you just did a bad thing, because if you say you, if you use any personal pronoun, like I, you, we, he, she, they, and so on, that's just the lower form of speech. You're not talking about what's really true. So if you say that I just did some really bad thing to someone, that was bad karma, that's not really true. It's just a tricky way of talking to kind of communicate with unenlightened beings. It's not really true. And so the whole point of Buddha teaching that be selfless, you know, be detached from egoism, the whole point was to get people to be unselfish. And yet if I had this blank check, I could never really do anything wrong because I don't exist. And what about other people? Let's say, for example, I just went up and, and physically harmed some innocent person. Hey, I just rearranged their aggregates. Don't get overheated about it, man. Chill. It's just their aggregates. I didn't do anything bad to a real person. There is no real person, man. Let's talk about ultimate sense. You know, you're down there in the lower level of speech. So the Pudgalavadans pointed out, he said there's no person, there are serious moral issues. And finally, they said, experience that all of us, when you really think about it, it's like, hey, I'm a person. And that's what we, that's our common experience. In fact, even if you take the argument of the impersonal side, that Buddha talked as if we were persons because he had to communicate with people, yeah. Maybe he had to speak that way, not just because people are unenlightened, but because it's so natural to talk that way, because everyone really does sort of feel like a person. And so therefore, the Pudgalavadin said that you can't create this gigantic chasm, this huge gulf, 
between our natural, obvious experiences and what is somehow intellectually, philosophically true. There has to be some connection. So you can't just... De- and Buddha himself, that was one of his main teachings, that the difference between my program, my great eight-step program and Four Noble Truths, the difference between my program and that Upanishad stuff, which is totally brand X, you know, you don't want to, you don't want that merchandise. <laughs> the difference is that on the Veda side, they're just into tradition, they're blindly following tradition, and they have faith in something, and, you know, whereas we're experiencing things, so experience is really important. That's the difference. That's what we've got going for us. We experience things. We don't just have blind tradition. Well, guess what? Most people experience themselves as persons. And most people even that meditated and became Buddhists kept feeling like people. And therefore what happened is this idea of an impersonal nirvana kind of got kicked upstairs like, okay, you know, we'll respect that, we'll tip our hat to that, our meditation cap to that. That's like our official thing somehow or other. But in the real Buddhist world, what are people doing? After a century or two, in most of India, most people are either Pudgalapadans or... Uh, they are eventually Mahayana. And what is Mahayana about? Become a Bodhisattva. What does it mean to be a Bodhisattva? It means that even though there's some maybe impersonal nirvana up there somewhere, actually, if you're really Buddha conscious, if you're really in the right consciousness, you will turn your back on that. Of course, you know, it just extends you over the back. You will, you, you will reject that, and you will come to this world life after life after life, to help people, mercy, compassion. So, if, in other words, the highest Buddhist consciousness, in fact, the, the Mahayana people, the Bodhisattva, but they actually look down on and criticize, if not ridiculed, what they call the Shravakayana, the way of Shravaka, which means that people would just hear things and then they just listen to what the Buddha said and then pursue their own enlightenment. People who want to go to the impersonal nirvana are second and third class Buddhists. First class Buddhists are the Bodhisattvas, the one for those for whom the most important state of consciousness is an intensely personal one, compassion, kindness, caring about people, doing good for people. It is that state of personal kindness and compassion which is the highest Buddhist consciousness. So that's what's going on. The Buddha people, the Bodhisattva advocates, and there's also a group called the Sarvastivad. There's going to be a backlash against this, by the way, uh, which won't really work, but there will be. Sarvasti, the word sarv in Sanskrit means all or everything. Asti means exists. Everything exists. Yes? Just before you proceed. Yes. You said that the Buddha said that follow my eight step, four noble truths, reject the Upanishads and Vedas. But the Upanishads talk about psychology, meditation, all the things that he's talking about. I can only, my opinion on that is that even though the Upanishads do talk about that, at that point in history, the Upanishads were really kind of mixed in with the rituals. There was all kinds of animal killing. Ahimsa, I think, is not emphasized today as much as it was then in Buddhism. It was a huge central thing in Buddhism back then, Ahimsa. And for the Jains, nonviolence. And so I believe, I mean, Buddha obviously believed that you can't really disentangle these two things at this point in history. And so he's got to, like, dump the whole package, and let's start over, and let's just, like, you know, do it right. But in any case, uh, Sarvastivad. 
there's not much time. How am I going to Okay, let me just jump to this. There was a, a very important person named Nagarjuna. This very important guy named Nagarjuna, about 150 CE. And he sees all these things going on. He feels, oh my God, Buddhism has gone to illusion again. Because everyone's doing all this stuff. There's a group called the Sarvasi Bhadans who were very important. They were a huge group in India, perhaps the biggest group. They believe that the world really exists and uh, the components of the world really exist. Everything really exists. It's a real world with real things in it. And he felt that Buddha wanted to teach that just as you can dissolve your unenlightened identity, you can dissolve everything analytically in this world and come to the conclusion that there's no real things in the world. And that's the way to become detached. If you conclude that nothing really exists as it is, I mean, the world exists, but there's no thing. Like this is not a chair, it's just a process, a bunch of moving parts always changing. So it's almost like you can't hit a movie, you can't become attached to a moving target. If you see the universe as just this process with no things in it, no real objects in it, then there's nothing to grab onto for attachment, and that will save you from suffering and so on. So he feels that the Buddhists are basically, they're all coming back to the real world, quote unquote, in the sense that all these personal identities are really the rage, in Mahayana, become a bodhisattva. You too can be a bodhisattva. In fact, we've all got an eternal bodhisattva nature in us. We have an eternal bodhisattva nature, eternal compassion, eternal kindness, relations with other people eternally, and so on. The Buddha. So, so Nagarjuna comes up with this. He decides that he's going to make a defense of shunyata, emptiness. That we've got to get back to basics. Everyone has misunderstood what Buddha really meant. We become corrupted, you know, by Hinduism or whatever. Let's get back to basics, everybody. So he's about 150 CE, and he has a shunyata, which, I mean, basically he's simply saying that the world is empty. Everything is empty in this sense. Not that it doesn't exist, but if you take, like, this piece of chalk, it's pratitya samutpada. You probably read that in the book, which the dependent origination, which that's not what it literally means, but anyway. Uh, Samuppada means origination, how something comes to be. Pratitya doesn't mean dependent, it means recognizable. But anyway, the idea is that if you look at anything like this chalk, it's just like this. It's just, it came from something else. It was manufactured, produced either by nature or by some factory or craftsperson. And therefore, and here's the assumption Nagarjuna makes. He's always described as brilliant. He makes one assumption which I can't get. In other words, I can't figure out the logic of it. It totally escapes me. And that is, he says over and over and over again that if something depends on something else, it doesn't exist. That if you say something exists, what you mean is it exists independently. If you say the chalk exists, if you say you exist, what you mean is it exists independently. That's not at all what I mean. I mean, I really believe that I exist, and I don't mean by that that I don't have a mother and father, or I don't depend on my friends, my loved ones, I don't really need trucks to deliver bottled water to the local stores, or etc., etc. And so I simply don't grasp the logic of saying that if something exists dependently, it doesn't exist, because when we say something exists, we mean it's absolutely independent. And you see this over and over and over and over again, this argument. That all these cute little things like it doesn't exist, it does not exist, it doesn't exist and not exist, it doesn't neither exist or not exist. All these word things are really based on this simple assumption which 
escapes me. And that is whenever someone says that this exists, they mean it exists absolutely independently, which I don't think hardly anyone means. But that was the basis of it. So anyway, Nagarjun, back to basics. The world is empty. This is the emptiness, by the way. This is the shunya, the emptiness of Buddhism. The world does exist, but you can't point to a thing which is independent unless something's independent, it doesn't exist. Which I don't grasp. Now, so Nagarjun was very sophisticated all these technical arguments, and what was the response to it? People thought, well, that's really impressive, Nagarjun, but this is dangerous. Because it was Buddhist, Buddhist, in the Mahayana tradition, he's in the Mahayana tradition, they feared Nagarjun's effect for two reasons. Number one, who's going to understand it? People don't just want a bunch of extremely technical philosophy. It's not really going to sell out there in the marketplace of religions. And number two, it looks like nihilism. Many people, even back then, came to the, got, came to the impression that Nagarjun was saying that the world doesn't exist because it's just empty. The world is absolutely empty. There is nothing which is not empty. No soul, no God, no nothing. And even though Nagarjun kind of said, well, that's not what I mean, even back then, people thought that's what he meant. And so it, it became a problem. It became a problem. So much so that after Nagarjun's doctrine, which everyone kind of accepted, okay, everything's empty, but they began to apply Upaya Koshelia, the skill and means, like, to Nagarjun. Nagarjun, who said that the personal side was skill and mean, people just talking about a soul or a pudgala because that's what people want, that's not the ultimate truth. Then people, Buddhists in his own tradition, Mahayana started to say, well, that's what he's doing, really. So don't, you know, in other words, don't leave Buddhism because of Nagarjun. So what happened was the response to Nagarjun was the Yogacara tradition. Achara means conduct or practice. Now, clearly, when you get to the point a little bit after Nagarjun, we're now like maybe two, three hundred, the common era, where people, the Buddhists, this becomes the big rage in Mahayana yoga. Obviously, there's influence from the Hindu side because the Yoga Sutras already exist, the Bhagavad Gita exists, and so. Basically, what the Yogacharya is doing in a nutshell, because there's not much time you're about to stampede out, is they say, look, Buddha was not talking about ontology. Buddha did not put forward a systematic philosophy, which everyone agrees. He was not trying to talk about what ultimately exists out there in the universe. He was talking about what exists inside of you, your consciousness, your suffering. You're suffering because of a certain mentality. Knock off that mentality and you'll be happy. That's what Buddha meant. So, Nagarjun, in getting to this, going to this very technical philosophy about what exists out in the universe, let's get back to what Buddha meant. Let's talk about internal consciousness. Let's practice yoga, everybody. Let's meditate. And let's just focus on lifting our consciousness to higher states. Because that's all that's really important, is coming to higher consciousness. So what they do is, they take the whole Mahayana discourse back to consciousness, claiming that's what Buddha was doing, he was talking about psychology, not ontology. And, and by this time, frankly, as this Yogacara developed, by that time, Buddhism is becoming less and less distinguishable from Hinduism. Because they've got the Mahayana heavens, the Buddhist heavens, just like Hinduism. They've got the Bodhisattvas, just like the great gurus that come back to, to, you know, to, to save the fallen souls. They've got something very much like a soul, compassion. They've got all this stuff. They're practicing yoga. So basically, Buddhism by this point, the Mahayana is the big winner 
in India is becoming very much like Hinduism, which is not an evil thing, it's just where it went. And if you buy into the idea that Buddhist was talking about psychology, not ontology, his goal was to reform, not to destroy what came before him, then uh, things are kind of working out. Because Buddha did have a tremendous impact on India. He really changed the discourse, he changed what the issues are, the focus. He, he had a tremendous, tremendous impact, and, and in many ways, I think, a healthy one. Any questions on all this? Oh, that was the impersonalism strikes back, but that's not urgent. So, any, any questions on these things? So, that's basically, again, in the last minute, well, that's a framework for understanding Buddhism. The variables, I'll say it all again. So, thank you all very much. See you on Wednesday.